associate minister here. So everyone loves a really great story. Every, well, let me rephrase that. Everyone should love a really great story. For me, one of the best storytellers that I know is my brother. People love listening to my brother because when he tells a story, he gets his entire body involved, which means that he gets everyone around him involved in the story that he's telling. Whether he's telling a funny story, which it usually is because at the end of most stories we are just all laughing hysterically. Whether it's a funny story or it's a sad story, my brother can tell a story that will draw anyone who's listening to tears. Good stories have characters and plots, themes and structure. And as everyone loves a good story, I want us this morning as we come to the book of Ezra to understand that this is God's story of God's people and we are included in this story. As we will go through Ezra for many weeks now, I want us to be drawn into the story and ask the questions, as God's people, what does this story have to do with me? As God's people... What truths are in this text that I must believe? And what truths in this text should drive a life of worship? Because as we will see, the book of Ezra is all about the building of the temple of God by the people who have been in exile. This truly is a divine story given to God's people to build up God's people. So as, before we begin to look at Ezra 1, let us please go first to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, I thank you for drawing us near to yourself. Lord, please bless us through the preaching of your word this morning, that there is nothing that I can say that will change a man or a woman's heart. But it is you alone who soften our hearts, who open our eyes, who heal our, heal our deaf ears to hear the goodness of your gospel in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who are sick among us. Lord, we ask that you continually to heal John. Give him strength as he has found himself weak. We thank you for keeping Terry from this virus. Lord, we praise you for what you are doing for Barbara and Paul Green. Continue to give them strength. Continue to heal their bodies. Lord, we ask for your protection of our church. Protect us from sicknesses, from disease, from pride and anger, from depression and anxiety. Lord, 
Lord, we do not ask for these things just as we pay lip service. We ask these things because we know that you are healing us, your people. Lord, I pray that we continue to be prophets and priests in our own communities. That wherever we go, our lives and our words will reveal what is in our hearts. That we know what is true. That we are saved by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And He is our only hope in life and in death. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray for peace and harmony. We pray for justice and for mercy. We pray for our leaders. May you bless them. May they build up society for society's good and for human flourishing. Lord, please continue to bless us. And may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So as is no surprise to you, this past year has been a pretty large pill to swallow. Just to think back in 2020, where we began with the wildfires in Australia, followed by this coronavirus that's seen destruction and unemployment, businesses closing, sicknesses and death, not to mention the loneliness and the separation and anxiety that we have felt from it. And I'm aware that in 2020, not everyone has been affected in the same way. But we can all agree, 2020 didn't go as planned. 2020 didn't turn out the way that we had expected. And this is exactly where the book of Ezra begins. No one in God's people would have expected that they would be outside the promised land in exile under a worldly king. For a millennia before, from when God called Abraham to himself and revealed the land that he would promise his children from returning from Egypt, from the great kingdom of David and Solomon, no one would have expected the people of Judah would be in Babylon. And they were there because they turned away from Yahweh, their king. They turned, the kings turned away from doing what the law prescribed them to do, and they became like the other nations around them. They neglected their covenant obligations, and they did not listen to the prophets. And so the Lord cast them out of the land. And that he did not do this without warning. 
For the prophets continued to tell them, and the kings did not listen, and the priests did not listen, and the people did not listen to the word of God. And much like 2020 didn't turn out for any of us the way we expected it, life in the land did not turn out the way God's people expected it. Now they are in exile. After being in the land for 500 years, we find ourselves in Ezra 1 in 538 B.C., living in Babylon, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. Judah was the southern kingdom when the kingdom split into two, and it was captured by King Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim was the king of Judah, and 2 Kings 24 tells us, the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Medes against the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets. So in 609, Nebuchadnezzar exported the first group from Jerusalem to Babylon. This included Jehoiakim the king, and for men's Bible study, a little brief insert, Daniel. Daniel was part of this first deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar carried some of the vessels from the temple. And then he placed Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim's son, to become king. And he was king for three months. And then he was deported to Babylon. And the second deportation, which also included the prophet Ezekiel. And there we read, we find out from uh, 2 Chronicles 36, that Nebuchadnezzar now took all of the vessels from the temple of God. And this will be important later. So I encourage you to go back, read 2 Kings 24 and 25. And 2 Chronicles 36, 19 through 21, because this is what we hear at the end of Chronicles. This is what happened when Babylon destroyed the city of David, the city of God, Zion on a hill, and this is what happened. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its places with fire and destroyed all of its precious vessels. He, Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him, to his sons, until the establishment of the king of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath, and fulfill, to fulfill 70 years. That's Second Chronicles 36. And then Second Chronicles 36, verse 22, says, Now the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Second Chronicles 36, the last section, is the exact same as the first two verses of Ezra 1 and 2. This is a continuation of Israel's history 70 years later when the people find themselves in exile. The people have been cast into exile. Why? From our Old Testament reading. In Jeremiah 25, why were the people cast out? Because they did not listen to the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 25, 4. 
You neither listened nor inclined your ear. Jeremiah 25, 7. You have not listened to me. Jeremiah 25, 8. You have not obeyed my words. 2 Chronicles 36 says, The Lord, the God of the fathers, persistently told them through his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against them. The people in Judah were cast out because they did not listen to God. He was speaking to them, and they were not listening. This is the problem that humanity has had from the beginning. What happened in the garden? What did the serpent tell Adam and Eve? Did God really say? And we find out that Adam and Eve really didn't listen to what God had commanded them. The people find themselves in exile because they were unfaithful to God's word. And we must ask ourselves, are we listening to God? We are his people. He has spoken to us. Are we listening to Him? We know that the world does not listen. But the Lord in Jeremiah 25 is concerned with, are His people listening? What should we hear when we read these first verses of Ezra? In the first year of the Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Even though we did not listen, the word of the Lord continues, and God is going to use whomever he needs to be faithful to his people. The people are in Babylon, Babylon wondering what's going to come of us. God, you've made promises to us. What is happening? And 70 years later, the, the, the Lord stirs up the heart of a pagan king to fulfill his mission. In his steadfast love for them and his loving kindness, these opening verses in Ezra proclaim to the people of God, God is faithful. They are still his people. Yes, you have been chastised for your disobedience. But I am bringing you back because I love you. Even though you didn't listen. Even though we don't listen. Even though we've disobeyed this week, probably good Good call, say, even this morning. God is faithful to his promises. And he calls us to obey his word. These are the opening words of hope. We can hope in God. We can hope in God because the word has been made flesh in Christ. And he came to us when we were not listening to him. 
God no longer sends us prophets that we might listen because he has sent the perfect prophet of Christ who says to us, come to me, all who are, all who are burdened, for I will give you rest. This passage reveals to us that God is faithful and speaks to a listening people. This passage also reveals that God is sovereign and gathers the chastised people. Back in September, John preached on Romans 13. and His sermon was entitled, God, Government, Caesar, and Anarchy. And in this sermon, John spoke about our charge as Christians participate in politics, in our local and state governments. And he preached on Romans 13, which is also very similar to 1 Peter 2. And what those passages teach us is that the Bible teaches God's people, according to His Word, that we are supposed to engage with the world around us. And specifically, we are supposed to pray and submit to our political leaders. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that, urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all, for all who are in high positions. The Bible teaches us to be good citizens, to pray for leaders, to submit, to ask of our leaders to do what's good, to ask our leaders to rule with justice and with mercy. Our politicians, as John says, have been divinely ordained by God himself to lead us. Now let me ask you, is that hard for some of you to hear right now? Whether it's been hard for you to hear for the past four years, or whether it's hard for you to hear in what's coming up this month. How are we praying for our leaders? How are we submitting to those whom God has put over us? Because what the Scriptures reveal is that God is sovereignly in control. Let me read verses 1-4 through again. In the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdoms and also put into writing, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Here Cyrus refers to God's divine decree four different times. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of, sovereign, of Cyrus 
Cyrus thinks he's the greatest king of all time. But what the scripture reveals is that God is still the sovereign king over time and history. God is not only, as Cyrus says, the God of Israel, but God is the God of heaven and of earth. And this doesn't surprise us because in Isaiah 45, hundreds of years before Judah went into exile, this is what Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of king, to open doors before him that gates may be closed. Cyrus, unbeknown to him, is fulfilling God's sovereign plan for his people. The scriptures reveal that even through Cyrus, God is working out his purposes for his people. The scriptures reveal that God is still in control. God is using this king, this pagan king, to do his bidding. And then we see in verses 6 through 11 that Cyrus actually commands the people of Babylon to give the Israelites, all that they need to go back and build their temple. So not only is God sovereignly ordaining all that happens, He's also sovereignly aiding His people with all that they will need to do to fulfill their calling as God's people. Cyrus returned them to Jerusalem. And Cyrus also returned everything that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And if any students here that went through, through, who studied the book of Exodus with me, if you remember, there's a refrain that happened throughout Exodus that God promised Moses at the burning bush, which really didn't burn at all. I don't know why we call it burning bush. But God told him, when he revealed himself to him that in verse in chapter 3 of 21 of Exodus, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, gold, and jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. And then in chapter 11, 12, and 15, we see the same language that when Israel leaves Egypt, they will leave not as slaves that have just barely made it. They will leave as victors who have plundered the Egyptians. Now here in Ezra 1, we don't hear the verbiage of plundering, but we see that God's sovereign hand is in control that God is ruling his people even while they're in exile, and they will leave their exile with everything they need to build the temple. Every time God's people undertake the process of building a temple, God provides them with what they need 
our God is still in control. Our God reigns supreme versus the gods of Egypt. Our God reigns supreme to bring the exiles back from Babylon. And our God reigns supreme even though when lawless men try to crucify God himself, God's mission was accomplished because our God is in control. God is at work. Political and historical contexts change. Rulers and kings rise and fall. At times the church is tolerated, and at times the church is oppressed. But God is king over the nations and grants his people participation in his purposes in every age. Cyrus was God's anointed, who fulfilled God's will. But then Jesus, the Holy One of God, the Holy Anointed One of God, came and fulfilled the Father's will. We must follow him by faith. And it's going to be hard. But God is in control. This passage reveals that a faithful God who speaks to a listening people. This passage reveals a sovereign God who gathers his people. And this passage reveals a holy God who creates a holy people. God worked through a pagan king. And he also works in the hearts of his people. Look at verses 3 through 5. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then, then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. In all times and all places, God has called the people to be special to him. For the Exodus people left, and again we hear a common refrain, as Moses went to Pharaoh, what did he say? How long do you refuse to humble yourself before God? Let my people go. That what? That they might serve me. It happens over 15 times in the book of Exodus. The purpose for the exodus of God's people was so that they might go into the land and worship Yahweh alone. He has called his people to be holy. To be what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To be temple builders. To exclusively worship Yahweh alone. And as we find God's people in exile chastised for not listening to God's word, we find them unable to fulfill this calling. While they're in exile, they are unable to build the temple. They are unable to be a people set apart as a holy nation. 
the biblical understanding of the word exile makes the most sense when you understand it as people are in exile when they lose their purpose and their place. They had lost the promised land, so they had lost their purpose, and they had lost their vision of what they were supposed to do. And church, I, I, I want us to ask ourselves, have we lost our purpose? For First Peter opens his book with, to the elect exiles. We are in exile right now. Have we lost our purpose while we are in exile? Because this is what Peter says in the second chapter of the same book. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against the evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. You see, even while we are in exile, we are temple builders. But we are not the primary builder. For Paul says in Ephesians 4 that the Spirit of God is joining the people of God together and recreating the temple of God through the people of God. We are the new temple being built together by God's Spirit. God is in control. God is at work among us. Our prayer should be, Lord, stir up our hearts. Arise, my soul, arise. The church is being built up by the preaching and the reading of the word through the sacraments, through the prayers and the fellowship of God's people. God is at work. He is sovereignly in control and He is creating a people through their union with Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. A new era is beginning in the work of the Spirit. And at the end of this chapter, we see these words, from Babylon to Jerusalem. A turning point for the people of God. God is moving his people out of exile, out of death, into life. And as Stephen recounts a great story of redemption in Acts 7, we actually hear that, it was, that the God of glory appeared to their father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and brought him to the promised land. So not only is this a second Exodus people, but the people in exile are following the same footsteps as Abraham. And they are called to do the same thing that Abraham did. Follow by faith. 
God is moving in his people. God is faithful to his people. God is in control. And God is making a holy people. Babylon is the city of the world. And when Christ comes again, he's going to create a new Jerusalem for his people. This is our hope. Amen. Let us pray. Stir up our hearts. May we be a people that you have called us to be, a holy nation, a holy nation in the kingdom of God. Lord, we ask that you stir up the hearts of our leaders. May they do your bidding. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let us stand and sing, Be Thou My Vision.